Vanity Fair asked me to write a profile of Putin in 2008, and, and I realized it was so fun. Because it was like, no one had ever done this. No one had ever taken a close look at somebody who I thought was incredibly, not interesting exactly, but um, you know, undescribed and scary and had world ambitions. That was Masha Gessen, journalist, author, and the winner of the 2022 John Chancellor Award. Hello and welcome to On Assignment. My name is Abby Wright, Executive Director of Professional Prizes here at Columbia Journalism School. I'm joined today as usual by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen. She's the director of the DuPont Columbia Awards. Hello, Lisa. Hey, Abby. It's great to be back after our short summer break last month. The new crop of students have arrived and as always, it's fun to see them navigating the hallways and their year ahead. It really is. Welcome to the class of 2024. So we have a really special back-to-school conversation to share with them and with everyone today. You want to explain a little bit about what we're going to hear? Sure. Last year, we hosted this event. We invited Masha Gessen to speak with Dean Jelani Cobb in front of a live audience here at Columbia Journalism School. Jelani and Masha are both staff writers at The New Yorker magazine, and this super engaging conversation was a no-brainer for our podcast. It really was. For the record, Masha uses they, them pronouns. And for those of you who might not be familiar with Masha's work, they have spent their decades-long journalism career covering a variety of important topics from Russia and the United States, including Vladimir Putin, to Trump, LGBTQ rights, and most recently, Russia's invasion of Ukraine as a staff writer at The New Yorker. Not only are they a remarkable writer and reporter, but they're also the author of 11 books, one of which you're going to hear excerpts of read by Masha throughout this podcast. The 2012 book you're going to hear is called The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin. Talk about a prescient topic. Um, it's a book, by the way, that we really recommend that you read. There are a few things we wanted to mention before we get started. Masha will refer to Grozny, which is the capital of Chechnya, and the site of a major battle in the first Chechen war in the 1990s. Yes. In the conversation, Masha compares their war reporting back then in Grozny to their time now covering Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and in particular, the city of Bucha, where Russian forces invaded, occupied, and unleashed a deadly attack on Ukrainian civilians. You'll also hear Jelani refer to the Medvedev era. Dmitry Medvedev was the president of Russia from 2008 to 2012. And one last thing. At the end of their chat, the audience has the opportunity to ask Masha questions. And since I was there and I was so enthralled with the conversation, it's just a fair warning that you're going to hear a lot of me from the audience mic. So let's get to it. Here's the edited version of the conversation with Jelani Cobb and Masha Gessen at the Journalism School in November of 2022. Good evening. It's good to be here with you all. And it's really good to be here um, with my colleague, Masha Gessen, who is the 2022 recipient of the John Chancellor Award. Thank you. Among many, many other kind of, of distinctions. And, you know, that was an interesting day. I saw you twice that day. And, you know, in the early part of the day, you were receiving an award. 
and I saw you again in the evening, you were giving an award. And I was like, that's a pretty good day. I know, that was, it was a great day in journalism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the um, evening award is the Committee to Protect Journalists. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm happy uh, to be able to talk with you, to talk more um, about your work and, you know, in awarding uh, the Chancellor Prize to you, I said that I think the spectrum of your work ranges from uh, important to indispensable. I tend to start with the same question uh, for people, which is, what is your origin story? Of the, the many things that like surely captured your interest or uh, piqued your curiosity, how did journalism come to be the thing that you've pursued? and built a career around? So one way to answer it is that I'm a fifth generation journalist. Oh, well, never mind, writer. there it is. So, <laughs> um, Lord, that's a lot of journalists. I know, I know. But um, I grew up in the Soviet Union, and my mother was, she was a literary critic, and she worked sort of the entire, my entire conscious life. She worked for a journal, um, and she was also a translator, like both of my grandmothers, who were also editors, and like my aunt and my other aunt. And um, at one point, my mother had a serious talk with me, and she said, you know, if you don't apply yourself, if you just keep doing, you know, a little bit of this there and a little bit of this here, you're going to end up like your Aunt Ira, just like a writer and translator. Um, <laughs> because she, too... <laughs> like took drawing lessons and played the violin, but you know, ended up not take, doing anything seriously. So like, it's, it was the fallback profession. <laughs> That's the bar. That's pretty funny. <laughs> right. It was like, I lived with this for decades that, you know, I was a failure. And, um, and then I realized like my aunt is like the premier translator from French into Russian mm. and like won all these awards, but you know, because you couldn't do anything properly. But talk to me about your early kind of days and starting out in journalism and, and the early work that you did. And uh, so for me, I had a period of time where I dropped out of undergrad and I had this basement apartment, which kind of reminded me of, you know, Ralph Ellison novel, Invisible Man, right? There's this character, unnamed protagonist, who lives in this basement that doesn't have an address because the city has basically forgotten that it exists. Uh, and you know he's down there kind of conspiring and building and well and, and I kind of imagined myself doing that uh, and I started writing these articles which were they, they generally ranged from terrible to awful <laughs> um, but that was where I started and so what were your early entries into the field like so yeah so that's another way of answering the question is that it's not actually hereditary um, but I dropped out of high school and uh, and so I was, one up to me. I went up to you exactly, <laughs> right, right. Uh My family came here. We moved to Boston when I was fourteen, and very quickly I came out and left home and left sort of the whole immigrant community and was um, living in a basement apartment uh, in so Boston. So there it is. If you want to be a successful journalist, you have to drop out of something. Your, drop out of something and find a basement apartment. These are the things. Um, and I was working as a bicycle messenger. And um, around the, uh, that time, there was a new gay newspaper in Boston called Bay Windows, which, um, which I became completely obsessed with. It was like the best paper ever. And, and my dream was to work there. 
So I kind of talked my way into working there first as a layout assistant, and then, and then I asked him if I could write an article. And I'm sure it was much, much worse, Jelani, than anything you wrote. I, I don't know. I'm willing to compare notes after this. Yeah, uh, I don't even think I'm willing to compare notes. <laughs> it's that bad. Um, but I wrote something else, and then something else, and then I gradually sort of got the hang of it. When I did end up going to college, I went to college for architecture because I was still trying to um, please my mother mm. and not do something unprofessional like journalism. So all the instruction I got was um, imitating other people, watching what editors did with my stories, and kind of learning what made a story interesting and also what made it informative. I mean, a lot of what I did in the first few years of, of journalism, and it's a little frightening that you know, I was a teenager doing this, but um, this was when people first started getting sick with AIDS, or at least people mm. first understood that they were getting sick with AIDS. <clears throat> and a couple of uh, people started understanding that um, that the only way for people with AIDS to survive for any amount of time to, was to become their own advocates and to educate themselves about possible treatments. Now, this was before the internet, right? And so a lot of what I did was was kind of amateur treatment coverage, uh, and I taught myself to read m medical journal articles and figure out how to digest them and cold call their authors uh, and 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 sort of boil them down for readers of our magazine. Mm. I'm I'm curious. Did the architecture ever become useful to you, and did the, the kind of varied curiosities that your mother warned you about? Was there ever a point where that kind of range of information became helpful to you in your work? Absolutely, because I think, you know, journalism is the art of knowing a little bit about everything. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I think that being a dilettante sort of in many different things is really good training for journalism because having a little bit of education in a field allows you to ask good questions mm -hmm. in that field. Mm -hmm. So I want to kind of jump to the opposite end of the spectrum. Can we talk about Vladimir Putin uh, for a little bit? <laughs> if you like, Jelani. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it's really interesting um, because you wrote a book about him in 2012, um, which was a point at which people were not really thinking about Vladimir Putin, certainly not as a major actor on the world stage. Uh, in 2012, when uh, Mitt Romney in the presidential campaign of that year uh, said that Russia was a geopolitical foe, uh, people laughed at him, including Barack Obama. President Barack Obama met with other NATO leaders in Brussels to discuss Russia and Ukraine, and then gave one of his clear, cogent speeches. This is not another Cold War that we're entering into, he said. After all, unlike the Soviet Union, Russia leads no bloc of nations, no global ideology. He was tragically wrong. He had missed Putin's transformation from a bureaucrat who had accidentally been entrusted with a huge country into a megalomaniacal dictator who believed he was on a civilizational mission. And so you had a sense that this was someone who was important enough to be examined at book length. 
can you talk a little bit about where that came from and what insights you've gleaned into uh, his psychology or his kind of motivations on the, on the world stage? It was just an excellent money-making scheme, you know. As a, <laughs> <laughs> it's a book that keeps on giving. Uh, Unfortunately, <laughs> it does. It has, the latest edition has like two, uh, one preface, one foreword, one epilogue, <laughs> and one afterward. Um, because he just keeps doing horrible things. Um, but um, so I moved back to Russia after the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. And first I worked for US publications from there. And then I, it's much more interesting to write in the language and uh, of the country where you're living for people who live there because there's so much more nuance. So then, you know, by the time that Putin came to power, I was straddling this line between writing for U.S. publications and, and working for a Russian magazine. And to me, it was clear right away that he was <clears throat> that he was terrifying. And I wrote a few op-eds for the New York Times, including one like in January 2000, saying he's going to remilitarize Russia and turn it into an isolationist, aggressive. Uh, power and he wants to recreate the Soviet Union. Not bad for like, January 2000. Um, then I actually got a job running the US News and World Report Bureau, which then closed because after 9-11, everybody shut down their bureaus in Moscow, which I think is one of the reasons that the US media so missed the story. Right. So US News uh, closed its bureau and then in 2004, I got a note from my former editor at News News saying, would you write a story about Putin's authoritarian tendencies? Mm. Uh, tendencies? <laughs> <laughs> like he'd already dismantled the electoral system, the judiciary, and, like he had tendencies, right? So, um, so I resolved I didn't want to, to do that. I would just would not write about Putin for these stupid American publications. And then, um, Vanity Fair asked me to write a profile of Putin in 2008. And, and I realized it was so fun. Because it was like, no one had ever done this. No one had ever taken a close look at somebody who I thought was incredibly, not interesting exactly, but um, you know, undescribed and scary and had world ambitions, right? Because Vladimir Putin was catapulted to power from obscurity, and because he spent his entire adult life within the confines of a secret and secretive institution, he has been able to exercise greater control over what is known about him than almost any other modern politician, certainly more than any modern Western politician. He has created his own mythology, the mythology of a child of post-siege Leningrad, a mean, hungry, impoverished place that bred mean, hungry, ferocious children. So the, the book actually grew out of that Vanity Fair article that um, that was for me sort of this this writing revelation, just how pleasurable it was to to do that and try to, to systematize what I had learned just as a Russian journalist and a Russian living uh, under Putin for, at that point, a, a decade. But suffice it to say that he's not exactly a kind of open book. 
<laughs> well, yes not like writing no. a celebrity profile. Like, how did you research that? You know, I think he's much more interesting than a celebrity profile because sure. uh, Putin had absolutely no public persona before he came to power. He was just plucked out of nowhere. So here's this person who gets to invent a public persona from scratch. So I saw it as a research project into what Putin wants you to think he is, because I think that tells us a lot. So here's Putin who has a, an audience of hundreds of millions of people who chooses to tell them about all the fights he has been in and how aggressive he has been and how vengeful he is mm. and how bitter he is about the breakup of the Soviet Union. And uh, th all of this stuff is meaningful. This is not like stuff that you dismiss. This is actually what this person who is running you know, a nuclear power, the largest landmass in the world, wants the world to know about him. This has vast implications. His ambition, or more accurately his dream, had been to have secret powers of sorts. I was most amazed by how a small force, a single person, really can accomplish something an entire army cannot, he told his biographers. A single intelligence officer could rule over the fates of thousands of people, at least that's how I saw it. Putin wanted to rule the world, or a part of it, from the shadows. I was in in Moscow in the Medvedev era, and uh, I was there for the May 9th um, celebrations, which is gigantic um, in Russia. And so it's the celebration of the end of World War II. And there's, you know, all I, I was, you know, there and all of this kind of revelry, and uh, there's a guy who hears me speaking English. And he just comes up and is like, F you. And he was like, I don't like Americans. And I was like, why don't you like Americans? And he said, uh, because you all are trying to keep us weak. And now I'm like, curious, you know, what do you mean? And he said, look at what you're doing in Ukraine. You're trying to use Ukraine to keep us weak. He said that to me in 2010. And so Everything that's happened subsequent to that has recalled that conversation to me. The fact that it happened on May 9th, the fact that he said this specifically about this region, uh, the fact that he said this to an American, et cetera, it explains a lot about the niche that Vladimir Putin operates in. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'd call it a niche. <laughs> Whatever it is, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's this. It's this. Actually, it's this vast reservoir of resentment that he has activated very successfully. Yeah, mm. there's a very simple thing that both. Uh, and this is not ju just Americans who fail to understand. I think a lot of post-Soviet Russians fail to understand it about their own country, which is that there was a thing that allowed people to make peace with <coughs> you know, constant shortages. Uh, widespread poverty, lack of freedom of movement, lack of other freedoms, sort of constant humiliation at the hands of the bureaucracy. All of that was the price they paid for belonging to a great country. Yeah. Uh, and you know that identity is so huge, and it was constructed to make up for so much 
deprivation. That to then say, okay, you may not have gotten any welfare, um, or if you have, I mean, most people did, right? Most people's standards of living improved, but not necessarily compared to their neighbors. So subjectively, you still feel pretty humiliated, pretty put down, but you don't even get to be part of something great anymore. Mm -hmm. So you have nothing. Mm -hmm. right? And in a way, the easiest thing for Putin to return to people is, is or to at least to promise to restore is that sense of, of, ident of identity, of belonging to something great. And for that, the whole world has to be afraid of us and has to be thinking of us all the time. You know, your coverage of the war in Ukraine, aware that it's political to even refer to it as a war. You've been in, in Bucha, uh, you've been in and around you know, many of the hot spots in that conflict. Uh, can you talk to me about what it was like there, uh, what kinds of things you saw, and what you make of the coverage that we're, we're getting on this side? Oh, well, that's a, that's a big question. Uh, so, um, you know, I have such, such complicated feelings about war reporting. Uh, I've been doing war reporting since the early 90s. And, and that's part of my answer to what I saw in Bucha, right? What I saw in Bucha wasn't any different from what I saw in Grozny, mm. right? Um, and I think that's both useful as a war reporter because I understand how to think about what the Russian army is doing, right? It's, it's not doing anything that it hasn't done before. The first time I ever heard a bomb explode within yards of where I was standing, I was in the stairway of an apartment building for the blind on the outskirts of Grozny, the Chechen capital. And I had gone to that particular quarter of the city because the Russian army claimed it was not bombing civilians. I could imagine no one who fit the very definition of civilian better than the residents of that building, blind, helpless, unable to leave the city. When I stepped outside the building, I saw bodies and body parts strewn around. I'm also really worried that there's things that I'm not seeing as freshly as when I first saw a conflict, right? I remember talking to somebody who was actually in a war zone for the first time, and I was reporting this big story on war crimes shortly after Bucha had been liberated, and I made some offhand remark about how uh, we were getting down to the, the stories about the kittens in the bomb shelter. Mm, mm. And she was like, what? And that's a genre. You know, the kitten in the bomb shelter, that's a genre of, of, of war reporting. Like, you've done the, you know, the family in the bomb shelter, you've done this and this and this. And then there's, like, the kitten in the bomb shelter. And, and I caught myself saying that, you know, this is, um, this is not great. Uh, like, there's, it's, it's, it's the other, the very ugly side of, of experience. But, I, I mean, I'm thinking about, like, the way that we use, like, the term callous, which I always feel is a little ironic. Because they say, oh, this is a very callous treatment of you know, a particular thing. But a callous develops because your skin has been repeatedly injured in the same place. Um, and it's actually a kind of self-preservation mechanism. And so I wonder if you think about it in that context, or is that like 
just part of metabolizing what you see every day and doing war coverage. No, I think I think I think you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a defensive mechanism. Like all gallows humor is a defensive mechanism. But you know, part of the art of being a journalist, maybe the whole art of being a journalist, is being defenseless. Mm. Mm. Can you say more about that? I think you have to to be willing to be injured by what you see, mm. and somehow convey that. Mm -hmm. I mean. The last time I was on Ukraine, was, uh, I was, was sort of working with much less experienced people, and I was really aware of the way that it, I work in ways that I hadn't been before. And I realized that part of the way that I work is I just try to make myself disappear, right? So, I mean, yes, you, and I mean, you have to be willing to be injured, but also not to let that injury get in the way of seeing, right? Mm -hmm. So basically, kind of pierced straight through. Which, which of course, you know, raises to me the direct question of self-care, um, you know, especially for you know, our students who will go out and cover things that are traumatic. I mean, if you're comfortable sharing, what do you do personally in order to digest all of that? I mean, I count myself very lucky because I think somehow the way my psyche works writing is therapeutic for me. Mm -hmm. I find it to be a meaningful act. I find it to be a healing act, especially when I'm writing and, and I'm aware that people are reading what I'm writing, which is a big luxury of, of working for a place like The New Yorker. You know, you don't feel like you're writing into the void. It's a very therapeutic process. So. But, you know, even I think this conversation that we're having now, I mean, this is a very new conversation. Um, mm -hmm. I remember being a Neiman Fellow in 2003-2004, and there was that study of trauma in journalists in war, uh, who'd worked in war zones. I think it was like the first study of, of that kind. The Neiman Fellowship is, usually brings together 12 US journalists, 12 international journalists, many of whom, is, uh, certainly in my year, had had war reporting experience, and no one had ever talked about this side of it, you know, like how I, um, I would break out in hives every time I went to Chechnya. Mm. And the first time I thought maybe I was allergic to it. And the second time I thought maybe I had some sort of skin condition. Then I went to dermatologists. And at the moment I landed back in Moscow, the hives would disappear. Mm. And it was several years later that I realized, oh, that's, you know, that's, that's a trauma response. Um, and everybody had some kind of story like that. Mm -hmm. But we hadn't even thought about it as trauma. What's interesting, it, it, I covered a, a, a few mass shootings. but. What was notable to me was that in Charleston uh, at the Emanuel shooting, I covered the trial, and um, the first witness was a woman who had been in the church, and she survived by um, pretending she was dead, but uh, she was laid on top of her 12-year-old granddaughter and covered them in blood. But that also meant that her 26-year-old son uh, who was the uncle of that child, uh, died in front of her. And so she narrated that story and you know, concluded with, I watched my son take his first breath in this world. I watched my son take his last breath in this world. I lost it. I just, I just did. And I was trying to like marshal whatever kind of professional reserve uh, but then I looked up and saw that all the other journalists were crying, 
Um, and then I saw that the bailiff in the courtroom was crying. And then I saw that the judge was crying. And so on some level, like that was useful to me because it revealed how thin the veneer of professionalism is that we're still human beings and we're still t trying to deal with something that is antithetical to our sense of humanity. But you know, that story is also about the power of narrative. Sure. Because I bet, and God forbid, right, but um, had you actually witnessed that scene, you probably would have let it flow through you and into words without breaking down crying, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's, it's, it's the words that, mm. that get you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at different points in your life, in your career, you've been an advocate for, you know, particular movements, causes, and so on, uh, you know, in journalism, and with the kind of capital J, sometimes thinks of that as anathema, you know, to what it is that we're supposed to be, and what, what we're supposed to do. Can you talk to me about how those two things have coexisted, or how you've reconciled them in, in the course of your career? So, <clears throat> there, you know, I immediately have like two completely opposite impulses to, to uh, on how to respond to that. So, first of all, um, you know, I having st started out basically as an AIDS journalist, I just know that the journalist is an actor and a political actor. And this idea that you're a neutral observer is absurd, right? And I think maybe in some ways it's particularly absurd now. You know, my basic uh, response is neutrality is nonsense. Um, and the other part of that response is, is neutrality is all, only ever accessible to unmarked people, mm. right? Uh, you only get to be neutral if you're a white, straight, cis, uh, well-educated man in a U.S. Uh, newsroom, right? If you're somebody else, you have a vested interest, sure. right? Uh, so you're, you're not a neutral observer and that can disqualify you as a journalist. I first wrote about qu being queer publicly late in life, like I was in my 40s. And from that point on, people have started uh, identifying me as a journalist and an activist. Mm -hmm. Up until then, I was a journalist. The moment I wrote, uh, I marked myself as queer, I became a journalist and an activist. Um, so, you know, I would just make that whole category suspect. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's interesting that if you have a bias and your editor also has that bias um, and your publisher has that bias and, you know, three or four of the other reporters have that bias, that's objectivity. <laughs> like, we, we're, we're completely objective because uh, we don't even notice you know, we're in an ecosystem where our bias has been completely normalized, like the, the cliche about the fish not knowing it's in water. Um, I wanna just, of the many questions I could pose here, I'll, I'll just do this one and then I'll open up the floor. What have been the most crucial lessons for you in the practice of journalism? Or, to frame it more succinctly, what are the most important things that you know now that you didn't know when you wrote uh, your self-described terrible article when you were first starting out? Um, oh, well, I knew nothing when I wrote that article. You just stumped me, Jelani. Uh, okay, so, so actually, this is a little anecdote. Um, 
this was like I uh, I'd, I'd been working in journalism for a few years, and I, I was an editor at a national gay magazine called The Advocate, and I assigned a story about Tom Dwayne, who was the first person to run for public office uh, as an openly HIV positive person. And so this this writer did a very good job reporting on Tom Dwayne's campaign. And I'd edited the article. It had gone through copy editing. It was on the board, so it was on you know on the wall. And the editor in chief, who's this amazing um, man named Richard Rollard, who had been a Hollywood reporter at the Los Angeles Times, and then uh, became editor. So he was flamboyant and just interested in everything. Incredibly political, and just absolutely brilliant. And um, and he walked into my office. He closed the door and he said, "Okay, the article is fine." It's just not at all interesting. <laughs> it's just, you know, because you have all these questions that naturally arise uh, when you're writing about somebody or reading about somebody who's running for office uh, and who has HIV, right? This is before the cocktails. It was uh, when, when it appeared to be a death sentence. Like, what is that like? Is he going to die? Is he afraid of developing Kaposi's sarcoma and, um, and having visible signs of, of, of disease? Like, all of these questions, and none of them are answered in the story, which is written in this sort of anodyne way, as uh, very respectfully, like you would about any other political candidate. And um, I think you know, uh, I think all experienced journalists have some story um, about realizing that to be a journalist, you just have to figure out ways to ask really uncomfortable questions. Uh, <laughs> and um, and that's the whole trick of the trade, is to satisfy your naturally rising curiosity, even if you think that that's indelicate. So there's a microphone here. Um, hi, Masha. I'm a huge fan. You're one of the first trans non-binary journalists in the mainstream that came to my attention as a young journalist. You mean a lot to me. Um, I'm very curious, you talk about like the sort of politicization of, of queer people in the journalistic space, you know, the advocate label being thrust upon you in the way that it has been. Uh, but, you know, as a trans non-binary person myself, who I think we both use they, them pronouns and so on, like our bodies are inherently politicized in those spaces, right? And my limited experience in newsrooms and journalistic academic spaces, it's been very hard to get that identity just baseline recognized. Not, not going beyond that, just baseline recognized. And I'm wondering what your experience has been like. Like, I'll turn down my transness for my journalism. I wonder if you've ever had to do the same, especially in a Russian context. Um, yeah, I mean, the simple answer is yes. And, um, uh, and I don't actually mind, right? I, um, I find workarounds, uh, whether it's, it's passing one way or the other, uh, because the story is not about me, right? Uh, the story may be about me when I'm back in uh, in the New Yorker's offices writing about it or interacting with my colleagues, but when I'm in the field, I'll be whoever I need to be to make myself as unremarkable as possible. There, there was this great moment when I was in my early 20s when I went to interview somebody, and I was waiting for him in the lobby, and he came out, and he looked behind me, like. You know, not like there's a lot of room behind me, and was like, where's the journalist? Like, that's my preferred um, way of being in the world when I'm reporting. Thanks. I, I'm just curious, could you elaborate on your point that Putin is not interesting? Because 
you write about him a lot. So I mean, I would expect, I mean, obviously he's super evil, but like I would expect that you find him interesting. Um, well, I mean, what I mean is, uh, uh, as a character, yeah, he's he's interesting in the sense that um, the sort of the juxtaposition of somebody as two-dimensional as Putin, uh, and the sort of amount of havoc that he has wrought is interesting. And I think uh, what makes him interesting to me now is is the universe that he has constructed in his head, and being able to try to decipher that for the American reader. As a person, he's just very uninteresting. He's uncurious, unintellectual, uneducated, uh, in, motivated by really kind of you know two or three major resentments. So in that sense, there's no depth to the person, right? But but that somebody that um, bland uh, has placed himself in this role is interesting. And just to add to that, uh, a little bit of Schadenfreude, um, when, uh, you know, when I wrote the book about Putin, it was generally very well reviewed, but a couple of reviewers wrote that, um, that my claim that somebody that stupid can become president <laughs> is clearly wrong because nobody gets that kind of power while being really ignorant and stupid. <laughs> I rest my case. I guess that's a good segue to my question. Given your coverage of Putin, what would be your advice to American journalists covering Trump? <laughs> uh, you're right. It's a good. It's a good segue. I mean, you know, uh, I think American journalists have accumulated a fair amount of experience covering Trump, and I think that um, perhaps we haven't done quite enough soul searching, considering that we're entering a new campaign season, and there will be a lot of covering of Trump, but I think that we're, um, they're traps, right? And I think that there's no way not to be degraded and diminished as a journalist covering somebody like Trump or somebody like Putin, right? It, uh, at least in their actual country. Because we, you're always ending up in, um, <clears throat> in a situation where you're describing what Trump is doing, as though it were politics, as though it were policy making, as though it were diplomacy, as though it were a presidential campaign, right? And it's very, very difficult not to normalize that to some extent, and that is something that I think uh, just using regular language of campaigns, of politics, of policy making, uh, to describe this person does damage to the language and does damage to the person using the language. So I think my advice is, uh, and, and the rule I've tried to follow is to keep that in mind and to engage in some, to develop sort of strategies of personal harm reduction to try to make yourself less diminished and less degraded by doing that. Hi, I have a couple questions. Uh, you talked about, uh, you know, being having to learn how to ask the questions that would elicit the answers that audiences wanted to hear and how hard that was. So when I was teaching, I used to say to students, you have to like try and channel in your head that you're doing this in the service of the audience. And um, I, I wondered if you have any other tips or tricks on like how to get yourself to get over that hurdle. Um, well, you know, I'm actually really glad that you asked this because I want to clarify that it's not like I really ask questions. Oh. I like prod people to 
to tell me the things that I'm really interested in. Um, and my trick is exactly the same trick that Jelani used when we sat down, which was basically, he said, okay, well, just tell me, you know, how you came to be here. That's usually what I start with. And then people, it's incredible. Most of the time when people realize that you're actually paying attention, uh, you're genuinely interested. The fact that I'm willing to sit there for three hours and, and genuinely listen will get people to tell me everything. I mean, most interviews that I do um, are, you know, most of my questions are, you know, and when was that? And what happened next? What was that year? And that's it. I mean, you know, and like people are nodding in recognition because that's uh, as, you know, that's the difference between this kind of interview or, or like a podcast interview. It's non-performative. It's it's all about demonstrating interest and sometimes, you know, gently pushing people in the direction that you want them to go in their narration. But I guess I'm thinking specifically of the sensitive question, the question that you're afraid is going to offend, the question that you feel is not the normative. Are there any ways to get yourself to do that? Um, sometimes you have to reveal something about yourself. Hmm. Um, sometimes you just apologize. You know, and say, you know, you realize I can't not ask you this question, but did you actually do the crime? You know, that sort of thing. I mean, that's one of the hardest questions to ask, is did you do it? Right. Uh, and, but then you say, you know, I can't, I can't walk away from here without having asked you that question, that sort of thing. Okay. So blame your editors. Blame your editors, blame, blame the fact checkers, blame yeah. your aunt, you know, somebody. <laughs> my, my editor is not gonna, he, like, let me come back if I don't ask you, you know, did you kill him? <laughs> so my follow-up. I'm getting a master's degree in oral history, and there's a, a, a really strong, robust conversation around exploitation of the subject, and, and I think it ties in with the question that I was asking before, which is, how do you, how do you reconcile asking the questions that need to be asked, digging in and asking people to tell you things they might not want to tell you, and the whole question of exploitation? Yeah, the answer is I don't know. Uh, I think that, <clears throat> I mean, you know, when we talk about exploitation, what we're really talking about is, I think, creating work that is, um, that either at the end or in its purpose doesn't reflect the humanity of its subjects. Hmm. Um, and, you know, generally speaking, I'm not only willing and very much desiring of spending hours and hours with people, knowing everything about them, learning everything about them, I actually want to put that in my story, right? I want to do the best possible job reflecting people's humanity. That does, uh, I don't always succeed, nobody does, right? But it, I know that's my sincere desire. Thank you. I want to thank uh, Masha Gessen for their body of work. I want to thank uh, Masha for, uh, for being one of my favorite colleagues uh, at The New Yorker. Uh, don't tell anybody else. It's, it's, it's mutual, John. Yeah. And I want to thank you all for coming out. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for the questions, and Joanne, thank you for your time.
you again to our Columbia Journalism School Dean, Jelani Cobb, and Masha Gessen for a really substantive conversation. We'll be back soon with another episode from On Assignment with DuPont winners and other outstanding journalists who visit us at the school, including an upcoming conversation between Dean Cobb and CNN's Jake Tapper. He's a 2023 DuPont winner for CNN's team coverage of Ukraine. This episode has been brought to you by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced and engineered by recent J School grad, Alyssa Castles. Until next time.